SCCT would like to thank HeartFlow, provider of the HeartFlow FFRCT analysis, for its sponsorship of the Donut of Destiny podcast. Precision Heart Care is available to patients at hundreds of hospitals across the globe through the use of coronary CTA and the HeartFlow FFRCT analysis. This just in, ladies and gentlemen, thunder rumbles as cardiologists and radiologists claim to get along but vehemently disagree on stenosis severity by CTA. A hurricane of interventionists exclaim, we're just going to cat them anyway. Uh, 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 No, Praveen, I didn't mean a weather forecast. I meant the forecast trial. Oh, uh, um, this just in, overcast skies with no chance of fun whatsoever in the town of Alastropolis. Praveen, listen, I, I don't mean to rain on your parade, but we should probably move on to the show. Wait, rain, rain on... Hey, nice little weather pun you got there. Oh, no, I didn't mean to... Oh, oh whatever. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Listeners, welcome back to The Donut of Destiny, the podcast on all things cardiac CT for anyone interested in cardiovascular imaging. My name is Praveen Ranganath, and I'm a radiologist in Dallas, Texas in the United States. And I am Alastair Moss, a cardiologist in Leicester in the UK. As we alluded to before, we will be discussing the forecast trial on today's episode. Today's episode is extra special in that we will be joined by our esteemed guest, the Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President of HeartFlow, Dr. Campbell Rogers. But first, Alistair, why don't we briefly review the forecast trial design and results? The forecast trial is one of the recent cardiovascular imaging studies using FFRCT, which sought to address the following question. Does the selective use of FFRCT in patients with recent onset stable chest pain result in better health economics and better clinical outcomes? Forecast was a randomized controlled trial conducted between December 2017 and July 2019 across 11 centers in England and Scotland. Patients were screened for study entry in rapid access chest pain clinics. For our colleagues outside of the UK, the rapid access chest pain clinic is an outpatient cardiology clinic specifically designed to provide evaluation for stable chest pain within two weeks of a community physician referral. They offer a one-stop shop to assess the likelihood of coronary artery disease and the requirement for further investigation. These are the same type of clinics that the Scott Heart Trial recruited patients from. That's right, Alistair. From these clinics, 1,400 patients were recruited and randomized into one of two arms, a standard care arm and an experimental arm. So that was 700 patients in each arm. The standard care arm followed the NICE guidelines on initial management, which includes cath, nukes, and CTA without FFRCT for a given pretest probability of coronary artery disease. And in the experimental arm, all patients underwent a CTA, and all those with a stenosis of greater than 40% in a clinically relevant vessel were referred for FFRCT. Subsequent clinical management in both arms was at the discretion of the supervising physician. Remember that this trial was performed during the phase in the UK where there was an update to the NICE guidelines, which occurred in November 2016. And they obviously went on to recommend coronary CT as the first-line test for recent onset chest pain. New coronary CT scanning services were being set up during the recruitment of this trial, and the forecast 
trial actually provides a timely measure of the availability of coronary CT in the UK, as more than 65% of patients were offered a coronary CT as a first-line test in the standard care arm. Exactly right, Alistair. And regarding disease severity in the experimental arm, those with a diameter stenosis of greater than 40% on coronary CT were referred for FFRCT analysis to provide a functional assessment of stenosis severity. That is to say, 32% of the patients in the experimental arm had a stenosis of greater than 40% on CTA. Compare that with the standard care arm, where 27% underwent a functional test, which could include stress echo or MR, perfusion scan or exercise CKG, and 7% went directly to invasive coronary angiography. All right, enough about this. Why don't we discuss the study endpoints now, Alistair? Thanks, Praveen. The primary endpoint was total cardiovascular costs and nine months of follow-up, including invasive and non-invasive tests, revascularization procedures, and inpatient and outpatient encounters, and the use of cardiovascular medications. Note that the costs were calculated based on UK tariffs. The secondary endpoints were change in quality of life based on the Seattle Angina questionnaire, as well as the number of major adverse cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events. Can you briefly uh, summarize those results for us, Praveen? Yeah, sure, Alistair. Regarding the primary endpoint, although the strategies between the two groups were different, there was no significant difference in total cardiac costs at nine months between the two arms. P-value was 0.10. The mean costs in both arms were both around 1,500 to 1,600 British pounds, while the median costs were in the 600s. Interesting. So this no-cost difference is a very different result from the previous platform and discover flow trials where selective FFRCT use was less costly than standard care. And those mean costs are a bit higher than the medians, indicating some very high cost outliers in both arms. Very good. Well, what about the secondary endpoints, Praveen? Well, in short, there was no significant difference between the arms in angina severity improvement, quality of life improvement, or major adverse cerebrovascular and cardiovascular events at nine months of follow-up. However, when dissecting the MACE a little further, there was a significantly lower number of caths in the experimental arm. That's 156 in the experimental versus 182 in the standard arm. And the p-value was significant there of 0.01. So let's provide a PICO summary for this trial. In a population of 1,400 patients referred for urgent assessment of new-onset chest pain, the selective use of FFRCT in coronary stenoses compared with standard care pathways, did not result in more cost-effective investigation, nor did it lower rates of major adverse cardiac and cerebrovascular events when assessed at nine months. Okay, Alistair, I think this has been a nice nuts and bolts overview of the forecast trial. Let's now bring in our esteemed guest, Dr. Campbell Rogers, to help analyze these results and discuss their implications. Hello, Campbell, and welcome onto the podcast. It is my pleasure to do so. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Hey, Campbell, you know, before we jump into the forecast trial itself, let's get a sense of who you are and what your journey has been leading to heart flow. Of course. My, my, so I'm a cardiologist, an interventional cardiologist by training and practice. I practiced many years in Boston, actually, at, at the Brigham. I was the director of the cath lab there for, for several years. Moved from there to work for Johnson & Johnson at Cordis as the chief scientific officer. And then just under 10 years ago, 
moved to join the HeartFlow team and I've uh, been part of the journey at HeartFlow since then. Thanks, Greg Kimball. Um, so let's dive into some of the forecast trial data that we were discussing earlier. How has the HeartFlow FRCT solution been used in the experimental arm of the trial? Can you just recap a bit about what, what the study was? Of course. So forecast was a prospective randomized study conducted in the UK of 1,400 patients. And in one arm, it was of patients presenting with chest pain, stable chest pain. And in one arm, it was quite prescriptive of how the patients were evaluated. And that prescriptiveness included that they would undergo coronary CT angiography. And then if there were a stenosis found in the CTA of over 40%, in at least one major epicardial vessel, which was described as of graftable or stentable diameter, obviously in the eyes of the beholder, that that would then be sent on to heart flow for FFRCT analysis. So in the test arm, the quote experimental arm of forecast, that's how it was used. Excellent. And Campbell, in your experience outside of the trial setting, is it common across other sites that work with HeartFlow to apply the FFRCT solution routinely on all cases that have that 40% or greater stenosis? Yeah, kind of. There's a, you know, there's a, a range. And certainly what we, how we educate sites who are using the HeartFlow analysis is that you know, there's a general guidance. And that general guidance is, okay, if there's a stenosis somewhere in the range of, say, 30 to 90%, that that warrants consideration for sending. Now, the reason I say it in that kind of somewhat wishy-washy way is, of course, there is a clinical decision to be made. Is the information I'm going to get from this going to change what I do for this patient? And that, of course, if the answer to that is no, then it doesn't make sense to get the information. But in general, it's 30 to 90 percent. If one looks, interestingly, the SCCT published an expert consensus document earlier this year, uh, Jagat Narula as the first author. And in that, they call out this 30 to 90 percent range as well as what probably makes the most sense, all else being equal. And again, just one, one more level of detail. Of course, if you know, if there's a total occlusion or clearly critical stenosis, there may not be that much added value for that particular stenosis of the heart flow analysis and FFRCT. Conversely, if there's no coronary disease evident, then again, there's probably limited to no incremental value of the heart flow FFRCT. So that's kind of where that 30 to 90 percent range has been established. And Campbell, in the forecast trial, obviously, there was a selective use of FFRCT, and that was coming up at around about 38% for those who underwent the CT scan in the experimental arm. Is, is that sort of number of referrals similar with other sites that you get referrals from, from your experience? Yeah, very interesting question. It is. It's, it's consistent with some. Uh, it's higher than some. That, that percent, so the, the percent being what, what proportion of coronary CTAs end up requiring or being sent for FFRCT, that depends entirely on the patient population being assessed. So, for example, in a practice with a lot of patients who are the worried well or very low pretest likelihood of having coronary disease, there will be more patients with no coronary disease and fewer patients for whom FFRCT may be useful. And the other end of the spectrum in groups of patients, and this was in some ways true in forecast, where it's essentially a foregone conclusion they're going to have coronary disease, then, of course, the rate would be higher. 
And I guess the, the reason for answering that, asking that question is just because the pre-specified endpoint was obviously looking at cost-efficacy analysis. And these things are always difficult, as you know, when you're taking models from the platform trial, which was you know, predominantly US, and then trying to translate that into the UK. Do you think you know, a similar sort of health outcome analysis would have been seen if we'd done it in a, a US trial setting? Yeah, so just quickly by way of correction. So remember, a platform which you mentioned was actually done in the EU, so and including some UK sites. So just to be com- completely clear on that. But that notwithstanding, you know, to your question that there are always challenges in considering a primary endpoint of a study, which is based on health economics and on resource utilization, which is what was the investigators chose to do in forecast. And so to talk about that briefly, leaving aside the clinical impact, which of course in forecast was completely consistent with all of the other studies which have been conducted in this, in this patient set, the challenges were that the study ended up being really, really underpowered. In other words, too few patients to test the hypothesis sufficiently in light of how practice was carried out in the study. And given UK-specific tariffs, the tariffs being the sort of cost assignments for different elements of care that went into that primary endpoint. So, you know, in terms of the underpoweredness, the challenge with what happened was that in forecast, even in the control group, over 60% of patients had CTA as the first test. And it's interesting if, you know, the the UK has this amazing health technology assessment group called NICE, the acronym for which is NICE. And NICE has, has, has looked at this pathway probably more than any other HTA on the face of the earth with real diligence. And they've published, they're very transparent. So they've published online health economic models for this pathway on multiple occasions. Uh, and in one of those, they, you know, estimated there would be roughly a 16% reduction in cost with this pathway. In another, they estimated roughly 7%. So both meaningful. Unfortunately, for, for, in forecast, the, the power calculations, the investigators estimated the treatment effect not being 7 or 16, but would be 20%. So much, much greater treatment effect and powered the study accordingly. And again, not not completely surprising that at the end of the day, it ended up being underpowered and not, and not being able to prove that primary endpoint. You know, Campbell, with regards to that primary endpoint of cost, I know we had mentioned we were using the UK tariffs and that sites that were recruiting from England and Scotland. Would it have been different had we used a US tariff system, understanding that the powering of the study may be inadequate? Yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't know. I believe the investigators may be doing that analysis. I, I haven't uh, haven't seen it at all. And I, I don't know because the other aspect of forecast had to do with the clinical pathway. And the pathways in the UK are, of course, different in meaningful ways from the US. But also the patient set included, included you know, quite high-risk patients. So they included patients who would have been, were they not in the trial, sent for directly to the cath lab with no initial non-invasive test. So what that does is that, you know, includes a group of quite high-risk patients. So, you know, picture, for example, you know, somebody with multiple cardiac risk factors who has classic anginal pain that goes away when they rest or take nitroglycerin and, you know, has, again, multiple risk factors. And those patients obviously have a much higher pre-test likelihood, and, and many would take them directly to the cath lab. So by including those patients, you know, one would anticipate 
perhaps there might be a little bit less of an effect if you add to that person's pathway we're also going to add a CT scan and then maybe a, a, an FFR CT that while you may be gaining some clinical value, uh, you certainly are adding costs to their side of the ledger. So I don't know in the U.S., back to your question, it, it'll be interesting to see if they do publish the, the economic analysis. The care pathways may be a little bit different as well. So it'll be, it'll be an interesting discussion when, if and when that comes out. You know, we were kind of mentioning both the primary and now a bit of the outcomes-based endpoints. So I wanted to flesh this out a little bit further. We know from platform and advanced NXT that there's beneficial impact to FFRCT, primarily when it comes to cath lab referrals, ensuring that there aren't as many negative angios and we do take the patients to the cath lab. So, you know, selective FFRCT and forecast as well led to fewer trips to the lab, fewer negative angios, really no difference in adverse outcomes. What's interesting, though, is that despite there being fewer angios in the experimental arm, there's still no reduced cost in that arm. So that that was something a little tough for me to wrap my head around, and I'm not sure if that's related to the tariff system or something else. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and the only thing I would add to the you know the clinical impacts, just as you said, the other thing that was observed in forecast was a reduction in layered non-invasive testing. So it was about 40% reduction in the need for layered non-invasive tests as well. So I would add that to both the clinical and potential economic impacts. And the reason for the disconnect, I think there, there really are two. One is the tariff systems and the amounts of costs assigned for each of those being different. But the second, and perhaps a little more organic to the study, is this notion of the population, including very high-risk patients who were almost undoubtedly going to go to cath anyway. And the way you can see this in the paper is that they did ask, it was very interesting and very well done. They asked before randomization, if this patient is randomized to the control group, what will be his or her pathway? And the choices were direct to cath or a CTA or a functional non-invasive test. And so you then are able to look at the economic outcomes in each of those pre-test, pre-randomization, I should say, strata. And the data are in there. And if you look at the group where the physician said, you know what, if this person's randomized to the control group, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a functional test. So you're thinking, okay, like in the PROMISE trial, for example, functional test. And in that group, the difference in costs were in favor of the test CTA and FFRCT pathway, somewhere between 200 and 250 pounds of difference, which aligns pretty well with the NICE models, which have been published using the UK tariffs. And again, that reflected about a third of the patients, a little less than a third of the patients in the trial. So again, back to this notion of if the trial really was testing okay, I have somebody who I'm going to do a non-invasive test on, what should I do? You had about a third as many patients as you would have needed perhaps to show the difference. But in that third, the economic differences were on an absolute basis were just what would have been anticipated. Kamal, I'd just like to come back to some of the, the clinical differences that we observed. In the UK recently, there's been quite a lot of interest in downstream testing following a CT choriangiogram, which, as you know, with the NICE guideline is now the first-line test that we use. And we're sort of left in this quandary if we do see someone with what we think is a functional stenosis, what test do we choose next? 
And there was some nice data that came from Gareth Morgan Hughes' group when, as part of the British Society for Cardiovascular Imaging, looking at audit data of what tests people did next. And they were reported quite an alarming rate of invasive choreangiography without uh, revascularization as being you know, something that they were trying to prevent. Because obviously what we're trying to do with our non-invasive strategies is select those who we do, do PCI on. And that was coming in around about 48% in their audit. And just looking at the forecast data, it's quite interesting to see that actually in the standard of care arm, the, the invasive angiogram with no intervention rate was 45%. But in those who underwent FFRCT, it was down as low as 25%. It was almost like a, a 50% reduction with that. So I guess the, the question is, is, is FFRCT the gold standard functional imaging test for patients who should go to the cath lab? Boy, that's a really interesting and provocative question. So I would say the, the short answer, I think, is yes. That if someone has a CT angiogram showing stenosis and it's ambiguous functional significance, then the data would suggest that FFRCT is more accurate than other tests at defining, is this an FFR positive or is it not an FFR positive stenosis? And I think when, you know, there there are sort of patient convenience slash radiation, et cetera, et cetera, factors as well. But I'm trying to stick just to your question, which is, should this be the pathway based on the clinical evidence? And I would say yes. I think really interesting, and, and this is a question of the sort of under the heading of timing, is that in yesterday's New England Journal of Medicine, there's a wonderful point counterpoint with Jim Udelson and Matt Budoff, which perhaps will be the subject of another of these podcasts fascinating point counterpoint between nuclear imaging and coronary CTA. And on both sides of it, there was reference made to FFRCT, the strength of the data on both sides of the argument. Very interesting. And on the nuclear side, the point made was there is not yet universal availability of this as the reason for which one might choose another test, implying that were there universal availability, this would be the test that would be chosen. You know, Campbell, to that point, a lot of our listeners are readers of coronary CTAs, and they're likely having frequent conversations with hospital administration and even payers with regards to either how to set up the system or how to continue to utilize a system in which an FFRCT solution is being integrated. How then should we educate some of these listeners when they're posed with questions about how the forecast primary endpoint results differ from that of, say, platform or discover flow? You know, it's an interesting question. I would r really revert to the clinical trial, the sort of strict clinical trial discussion, which is, you know, I, as a clinical scientist, that's what I revert to for two things. The study wasn't powered sufficiently to assess the hypothesis being tested, period. The second is, if you're in your question, if that's a U.S. discussion, of course, there's the you know, conversation that these are health economic analyses done using U.K. cost weights, U.K. costings and tariffs, uh, which may or may not be germane in the U.S. But again, that's not the only part of it. The, the major part to me, just as a, as a clinical trialist, is that I think it was underpowered to really test the question at hand. And Cam, I guess in just like a passing comment, um, we're coming towards the end of the the recording now. What what sort of things are you looking forward to with uh, FFRCT in the near future? Have we got any exciting um, results that are going to come onto our horizon in the near future? 
Well, we do. We have very interesting clinical trial, prospective randomized trial called the PRECISE trial, which is just fascinating. It has completed enrollment in May, just of the last year. And just thanks for the, the, the question. So PRECISE, the principal investigator is Pam Douglas. It enrolled at 50 odd sites around the world, mostly in the US, some in Europe, some in the UK, and is different from forecast in that in the control arm, it really is is either patients who are going to get functional testing or go directly to the cath lab. And then the experimental arm is largely like forecast, CT and FFRCT, but it includes this fascinating subset of the lowest, about 20% risk patients for whom no test at all is being done. So it's for the first time a you know, it's a, a study of patients who come in and have some symptoms suggestive of coronary disease, but we've all seen these patients clinically. And there's this notion that I just know you don't have coronary disease, but you know what? My hands are tied. I have to do some kind of test because for whatever reason. And this study is, is under in a very controlled way, uh, taking those patients and saying, okay, well, we're actually not going to do a test and we're going to follow for clinical outcomes. So that study is very exciting for us. It has a one-year endpoint, so we should have data sometime next fall, you know, in the fall of 2022, and certainly look forward to sharing those data with the, with the clinical community. Excellent. Campbell, truly thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your time and expertise. Do you have any final comments before we close? Just to thank you for the opportunity. This has been my privilege to join this, and I congratulate you on these podcasts. They truly are wonderful. Great. Thank you, Campbell. And thank you to our listeners out there. If you like what you hear from us, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Once again, this is the Donut of Destiny. Cheers. Thank you to our sponsor, HeartFlow, for their support of this podcast. HeartFlow is working to help clinicians across the globe recognize that coronary CTA is central to delivering precision heart care to patients. HeartFlow is revolutionizing precision heart care with the HeartFlow Analysis, a non-invasive personalized cardiac test that combines 30 years of human ingenuity and advanced technology. To learn more, visit www.heartflow.com.